We're starting a brand new series today called Love, Sex, and Loneliness. And uh, probably one of those categories strikes you as interesting. Um, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you could grow. I think we all could grow in some of these areas. This comes, um, the, the genesis of this is back in November, I was reading a book by John Mark Comer called Loveology. I highly recommend it. And some of the thoughts that I'm going to be sharing today come from that book and uh, encourage you to, to, to maybe get a copy of that yourself from Amazon. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 29, and so if you have your Bibles, whether it's a book form or it's an app on your phone or tablet, we're going to be looking at Genesis 29. If you have a, a, in, your, in a book form, it's super easy to find because it's the first book of the Bible, and so you just go past, you know, maybe some of the notes of translation and all that, and you'll see right away there's Genesis. Genesis chapter 29, and today we're going to be looking at the account of a guy named Jacob. And Jacob is one of the first characters in the Bible that we're introduced to. He's the son of a guy named Isaac, and he's a grandson of someone that maybe you've heard of, Father Abraham. Like, Father Abraham was literally Jacob's grandfather. And how many of you know Father Abraham? Did you know he had many sons? Did you know that many sons had Father Abraham? And I am one of them. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, I was just trying to figure out who are all the people who grew up in Sunday school and going to VBS and all that. So, so anyhow, this is Jacob. He's a grandson of Abraham. And Jacob had a rough life. I mean, really did. For starters, his twin brother Esau makes it out of the womb first. And uh, I mean, this, this, literally scripture tells us that Jacob is born a few moments later, literally holding on to Esau's like ankle. Like he is just scraping to get ahead from the very moment of his birth, right? And of all the lousy things that a parent could do, they name him, the Hebrew is Yaakov, or we, we pronounce it Jacob, and it means heel grasper because they were taking literally, you know, the fact that he came out of the womb grasping the, the heel, but it's a Hebrew idiom for deceiver or liar. Um, that's not a good thing to do to your kid. Okay, and I, I just, this isn't part of the sermon, but parents, grandparents, we've got to be so careful of the words that we speak over our children. You, you idiot, you'll never measure up, you're so stupid, you're evil. I've literally heard Christian parents speak to their kids and say, you're evil. Whoo, no, maybe they did something wrong, but don't speak that over them, right? And so they, they would literally, I mean, they Every time they would say his name, they were saying, deceiver, liar, right? And he lives up to his name. Because his story is one lie, one deception after another. He deceived his older brother Esau, his father Isaac, his uncle Laban. And he's always trying to outrun those lies. Because if you've lived a life of deception, you know that, man, you tell a lie, but then you got to try to cover up that lie, right? And you got to kind of keep track of your lies. And this is Jacob. He's deceiving people. He's lying to people left and right. He's trying to outrun these lies, but it doesn't work. And finally, Jacob is deceived. The con man gets played. And where does he get deceived? But in the area of love. Love. We're going to look at this in a moment. In Genesis chapter 29, Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau because he had just swindled him out of so much 
And he's heading 100 miles away to where his mother had grown up. And he finally finds this village. And like one of the first people that he sees in this village is a woman. And he is just immediately smitten. I mean, this is the closest thing that scripture comes to sharing love at first sight. Like he's just like, what's your name? Where do you live? Do you have a phone number? Like he is like so in love. But scripture gives us an odd detail. And I'm picking up in Genesis chapter 29. This is where we're going to start reading. We're going to be in this chapter most of the time uh, this morning. In verse 16 it says, now Laban had two daughters. Now Laban is, I just said he fell in love with this girl named Rachel. Rachel's father's name is Laban. But scripture tells us something interesting about Laban. It says, now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. This is the one that Jacob is in love with. And it gives us this detail. And at first you read this, you go, well, why do I even need to know this? Oh, you're going to need to know this. If you grew up in a high school English, you know, if you went to high school English class, this is something called foreshadowing. Because it says, there was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. Some of your translations would say that Leah had weak eyes. Now, what is that all about? What does it mean when Scripture says that there's no sparkle in her eyes, that she has weak eyes? It's basically a Hebrew euphemism for the fact that she is unattractive. Back then in that culture in the Middle East, and even today in some parts of the Middle East, women wear veils. I mean, like, top to bottom. And so you wouldn't be able to really see what their body looked like. You wouldn't be able to see what their face looked like, how beautiful their face was, or how ugly their face was. All you would see is their eyes. And so if, it, if their eyes were attractive or if their eyes sparkled, you would say that their whole body was beautiful. But if their eyes were dull or their eyes were unattractive, you would say that their whole body was ugly. And Leah, it was said of her that she was U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, she's ugly. She is ugly. Goes on, it says, the rest of verse 17 says, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face, and Jacob was in love with Rachel. There it is. The language of our culture. I'm in love I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. Ironically, the story is a disaster. Jacob wants to marry Rachel, but he doesn't own anything, and in that day, you would go to a woman's father, and you would bargain. You would, what can I give you? What do I, what do I have that you want in order to be able to marry the guy's daughter? And he has no, he's on the run. He doesn't have any livestock. He doesn't have any property. He doesn't have any money, and so they work out a deal Jacob and Laban, where Jacob will work seven years, and then after being faithful and working seven years, he'll have the opportunity to marry Rachel. So scripture says in verse 20, so Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. That's exactly what I thought. Oh, isn't that romantic? Finally, the time came for Jacob to marry Rachel. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. And for like the first time in his life, Jacob the liar, the deceiver, is brutally blunt honest. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. (laughs) I've worked my butt off for you. Now I want to have sex with your daughter. Give her to me like now. Is what he's saying, right? 
So a wedding feast is prepared and invitations are sent out and family members and friends are invited and the alcohol is flowing and, and they party all into the night and there's dancing and the alcohol is flowing and finally the guests start leaving and Jacob heads to the tent where he knows that his new bride is and he's thinking in his mind, finally, I get to be with my bride he goes in a tent, it's pitch dark because there weren't the modern conveniences of mood lighting. There's no flashlight apps on your phone and he goes in and she's in the corner and they make whoopee and the camera pans to the ceiling so we don't see anything inappropriate. Verse 25 says, but when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah the older daughter, the deceiver is deceived. And Jacob realizes that he's been duped. This, this verse is so interesting. When morning came, there was Leah. You know, life is like that. You work, and you sweat, and you wait, and you hope, and then you finally make it. You arrive, and it's incredible for a moment. But when morning comes, it's a letdown, a disappointment. Life is full of letdowns, isn't it? In fact, the same thing is true of marriage. Marriage will let you down. Now, don't get me wrong, marriage is incredible. This year I will be married 22 years to my wife, Carrie. But I want to say something that we don't say at weddings because we would never be invited to officiate a wedding again if we said this. Marriage is not paradise. The Apostle Paul says it this way. You'll never see this verse in a wedding card, by the way. He says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And it's true, isn't it? You take one person with pain and regret and baggage and an odd uncle and you put them together with another broken person who has problems and issues and unrealistic expectations and an overbearing mother-in-law and it doesn't equal bliss. In fact, the math adds up to twice as much crap, right? By the way, happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> You're like, wow, this is not the sermon I thought I was going to hear today. We, we usually make one of two mistakes when it comes to love. And, and this applies not just to love, it applies to life in general. Some of us under-desire marriage or a career or a success or some kind of dream. And so we settle. We never really live. We're scared, we're cynical, we're just too tired to actually dream. And, and this group is rarely let down because they aren't brave enough to risk in the first place. But you know there's a second group, and this second group over-desires marriage, or college, or some kind of dream, or success, or whatever it might be. This group, we, we risk and step out and go for it. We're fueled by an audacious sense of anything is possible. We grow up dreaming about love and we put so much pressure on marriage, so much pressure on sex, on romance to fulfill us that it could never live up to the hype. 
Wherever we fall on the spectrum, it's just a matter of time until we wake up one morning and we open our eyes to a letdown, to disappointment. As the story goes on, Jacob does end up marrying Rachel. He finally gets his love. And now he's married to two sisters. Just imagine that for a moment. To say this family was dysfunctional would be generous. And Rachel ends up being a problem. Her character falls short of her beauty. She lies, she steals, she worships idols, and for years she is barren. What about Leah? Leah knows she's second string. She grows up being JV. Relegated to a loveless marriage, how does Leah cope? I want us to look at verse 31. And there's some, there's some verses in here that just break, just break me. Verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. I just want to pause there for a second. Maybe you're in this room and you feel unloved. Maybe you're married in this room and you feel unloved. I want you to know something. The Lord sees you. He sees you. On the outside, it may look like you've got everything put together. But on the inside, you feel ugly. You feel like you'll never get ahead. You feel like nobody loves you. No one truly, like, really sees you. No one truly cares about you. I want you to know the Lord sees you. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, the Lord has noticed my misery, and listen to this, and now my husband will love me. Can't tell you how many times I've sat across the table and a, a woman will be just bearing her soul and how difficult a marriage is. And, and then they come up with this bright idea, maybe I need to have a kid. I'm in a loveless marriage. I don't think my husband truly cares about me. Maybe we should have a child. That'll fix it. No, it won't. No, it never does. But Leah is thinking in that vein of thought, right? Now, now that I've given my husband a son, now my husband will love me. We know it doesn't work because the very next verse says, she soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Simeon, for she said, the Lord heard that I was unloved, and he has given me another son. But wait, there's more. Verse 34, then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son, and he was named Levi, for she said, surely this time my husband, listen to this, surely this time my husband will feel affection for me since I've now given him three sons. Can you hear the hurt? My heart breaks for her. Can you imagine always in Rachel's shadow? even though she's the older sister? I wonder, did she even want to marry Jacob? I mean, did she even see anything 
toward him? I mean, probably she saw right through him. Did she see his manipulation and his lies and his duplicity? I mean, probably as an older sister, she might have just been like, eh, that guy's a jerk. I wonder what kind of relationship she had with her father that he would set her up in this way. Like, has this been her whole life? Unloved, insecure, ugly. Some of you in this room can relate to Leah. Maybe you've never truly felt loved. Maybe you've never truly felt accepted. I'm amazed by especially how many attractive, beautiful women, when they are honest, say, I don't feel beautiful at all. It always blows me away. Some of the most beautiful people I know will tell you in moments of incredible honesty, I don't feel beautiful. I don't feel loved. Some of you in this room might identify with Leah, like nobody will ever see you for who you really are. And so we wonder, like, what do we do? Look at the very next verse, verse 35. It says, once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. So this is, if you're counting, son number four. And she named him, and this is really important, she named him Judah, For she said, now I will praise the Lord. Judah literally means praise in the Hebrew. Like there's something that clicks for Leah that now, Scripture literally says, now I will praise the Lord. Like a light bulb comes on, a penny drops, and Leah goes, you know what? I've been looking for acceptance from my husband. I've been looking for love from my husband. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that I can't make that happen. I'm not going to be able to change him. So I've decided that now I will fix my eyes on God. Now I will praise the Lord. Now I'm going to look to God's approval. You know, this is a great lesson for us. Some of you feel stuck. Some of you feel like, you know, we we sang the song, All My Life You Have Been Faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. And some of you are standing, and maybe you were even mouthing the words, but you were thinking in your head, No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't been faithful. No, he hasn't been good. He's been cruel. There comes a place where we say, you know what, in spite of how I feel, in spite of how life looks, I'm going to make a determination to praise the Lord. And, you know, this is easy when you're on vacation in Colorado surrounded by snow-capped mountains and beautiful wild flowers and you're skipping through the flowers and you can sing your praise to the Lord. Come on, everybody. Stand up and sing one more. Hallelujah. Nobody? Nobody got that? That's another Christian 80s reference. But you know, it's a whole lot more difficult when life is sucking every bit of enthusiasm out of you and you feel like you're drowning and you feel like you're suffocating to be able to say, now I will praise the Lord. There was a a song written back in 1979 by Elliot Bannister and Michael Hudson. And uh, it was popularized by a Christian recording artist named Russ Taff. I I wanted to just read these lyrics. It says, when you're up against a struggle that shatters all your dreams and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested schemes 
and you feel the urge within you to submit to earthly fear, don't let the faith you're standing in seem to disappear. Praise the Lord. He will work through those who praise him. Praise the Lord. For our God inhabits praise. Praise the Lord. For the chains that seem to bind you serve only to remind you that they drop powerless behind you when you praise him. Now Satan is a liar and he wants to make us think that we are paupers when he knows himself we're children of the king. So lift up the mighty shield of faith for the battle must be won. We know that Christ Jesus has risen and the work's already done. Praise the Lord. He will work through those who praise him. Praise the Lord for our God inhabits praise. Praise the Lord for the chains that seem to bind you serve only to remind you that they drop powerless behind you when you praise him. There's something powerful about praising God, especially in the moments where I don't feel like it. I don't think Leah felt like it. But I think there was something that happened inside of her. I believe it was the Spirit of God stirring something to say, you know what? Choose. Make a choice to praise God. And praise is difficult because by its essence, the word praise is this idea of it's not just thinking thoughts. It's literally the idea in the Hebrew is a verbalization. It is verbally speaking out, declaring the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, his character, his essence, who he is. We know from science that there's something that happens when we speak things out loud. Not just thinking it but we speak it. And this is what Leah begins to do. I'm just gonna speak and declare who God is, what he has done, regardless of how I feel. Interestingly, Leah would go on to have two more sons, but it was from this fourthborn, Judah. From the tribe of Judah comes the long line of Israelite kings, kings like David and Solomon, and Hezekiah, and Josiah, and hundreds of years later, a king that would be born in a cave in Bethlehem, Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. And Leah, the rejected one, the second class, the one that was considered ugly, would become the great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandmother of Jesus himself. She didn't see it. She didn't understand what was being done in the heavenlies. She didn't understand it at all. But God was doing something inside of her and the presence of Jesus would literally be manifested because of her praise and her declaration. So many years after, she'd breathed her last. Jesus knew what this was like. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was called a man of sorrows. Jesus, according to Isaiah, wasn't attractive. There wasn't anything about him that would cause us to think that he was a charismatic leader. But Jesus would declare the greatness of God in the midst of his life 
the presence of the Spirit would be manifest. I think it's interesting in this book, Loveology, John Mark Comer makes this statement. He says, God isn't just in the letdowns of life. Think about this. God isn't just in the letdowns of life. He uses the letdowns of life. Listen to this. The dreams, relationships, and marriages that don't measure up, even in a screwed up family with a polygamous marriage that was anything but what God intended, God was at work. God uses our sin. He uses our mistakes, our misjudgments, our bad decisions. And I'm so grateful for that. There isn't one person in this room that God has wiped his hands of you and walked away from you and said, they'll never measure up. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what has been done to you. I don't care how loved you feel, how unloved you feel. You have a heavenly father who is able to do in and through you things you can't even begin to imagine right now. Will you turn your eyes to him? Will you say, you know what, life stinks, but now I will praise him. So I'm here to tell you, whether you're single, married, lonely, in love, hurting, hopeful, wherever you come from this morning, here's what you can know with certainty. This life is a gift. And love, and marriage, and sex, and romance, and singleness, this whole thing was created by God, and it is good, and it's for your enjoyment. And the letdowns will come. But when they do, may you turn your gaze to heaven. Like Leah, may you make a choice to praise God, to verbally remind yourself of who God is and what he has done. Would you bow your heads with me? First, I want to speak to maybe someone in the room who you're like, man, I, you've talked about following Jesus. You've talked about, you've talked about this idea of a journey, and how do I get on this journey of following God? And I, I just want to first say that this isn't complicated. It's not about becoming a member of a church. It doesn't start with baptism. Baptism is actually the outward demonstration of what has already been started inside of us, it starts with really following God, starts with coming to the end of ourselves, humbling ourselves and recognizing, God, I don't have what it takes. I'm sin-stained and sin-covered. I'm broken, I'm helpless. God, I need you. In fact, I don't know that we can truly experience salvation until we come to that place of humility. And we lift our head up we say, God, I believe that you have the power specifically through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus hung on that cross naked, brutally tortured, dying in one of the most excruciating ways so that he could take upon himself our sin and our punishment. And on the third day, he was resurrected from the grave, proving his authority his power over whatever we face in life. Have you ever received his forgiveness? Have you ever asked Jesus to come into your life to be the master and leader of your life? Have you ever surrendered and just cried out, God, I'll go where you want me to go, lead me? If you haven't, today can be the beginning point for you, the starting point. 
With everyone's eyes closed and heads bowed, we're not going to embarrass you in any way. I'm not going to call you out. We believe that baptism is where we go public, where we publicly profess what Jesus has done. But if you're here and you need Jesus in your life, I'd love to be able to pray with you and for you. Let's ask you, would you just raise your hand right now? Let's ask you, I want to pray with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anybody else? You can lower them after you've raised them. Anybody else? Yeah. Anybody else? God so loves you. He so loves you. He's been waiting for you to respond to him. If you raise your hand, actually, I'm going to ask this whole room with your eyes closed and heads bowed, would you just pray this prayer with me? This, this prayer is not praying this precise formulaic prayer that saves you. It's meaning these words in your heart. And all over this room, whether you raised your hand or not, would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I know he died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave so that my sins can be forgiven. Come into my life. I receive your grace. Empower me to actually follow you. May I go where you want me to go. May I say what you want me to say. May I do what you want me to do. I am determined to follow you. God, I pray for those who are making that decision. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would supernaturally do something inside of them right now. I know your word says that if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died and was resurrected from the grave, that there is something mysterious spiritually that's happening inside of us. So God, we cling to that. We lean into what you are doing right now. God, I pray for those in this room who maybe feel like Leah. They walked in here feeling the weight of the world, feeling unloved, maybe even in a loveless marriage. God, that you would give them the courage to look up and to say, now I will praise the Lord. And God, in their sacrifice of verbal declarations of who you are and what you've done, God, may they sense your closeness and your peace. And even if all of their questions are not answered on this side of heaven, that they would know that Jesus is being glorified through them and that they would see your hand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.